0: Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media.
1: I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we're going to discuss Sandman number 13, The Doll's House, part four, Men of Good Fortune, cover date of February 1990, art by Michael Zulie doing pencils, Steve Parkhouse as Inker, the colorist on the original... Um, comic was Robbie Bush. Uh, it was redone by Zolanal for the absolute and omnibus Sandman. Uh, Todd Klein as letterer, art young as assistant editor. And of course, Karen Berger as editor and executive editor in chief of vertigo in the future. So Michael Zuley making his, I think first appearance as artist for us. Um, and we'll see him quite a bit in future Sandman, but, uh, kind of a break here from some of the art we've had,
0: Kind of a break here from the story that we've got going on as well. And I wondered if that is why they brought him in as a guest artist or if there was something else going on here. Do you do you have anything about that in the annotated
1: Sandman? I don't have that specifically about this issue, but I do know that frequently um, the decisions were made to change artists specifically when there were story changes or breaks. Um, and later, um, Neil Gaiman, I think, even had more input into who was in. Um, although in this case, I think he was quite happy with, happy with Michael Zuley's um, art. In fact, in the, the Sandman Companion by High Bender, uh, there's an interview with Neil in which Neil is talking about Michael Zuley's work. And he said, quote, I knew that for good men of good fortune to work, it needed to make readers feel that they were moving forward through time, century by century. And the way to do that was to get all the costuming, architecture, and other period details right visually. In other words, to recreate an environment in the pub that would be appropriate for each century being represented. It called for someone meticulous about details. And Michael struck me as the person for the job. And uh, in the same interview, also Neil mentions that uh, this is one of his favorite stories. And we should mention off the top that Men of Good Fortune, uh, most likely the title is stolen from uh, the Lou Reed song, Men of Good Fortune, which similarly is about men of high and low position and the effects that they can or cannot have on the world as time passes.
0: Right, and fortune is going to be... The, the theme, the kind of central motif here of this story. And I mean, I guess we should just get get into our scene-by-scene our scene recap here, right? This, this issue is, I mean, it's really an interruption of the actual Doll's House story arc, and it's an isolated, well, I mean, at least so far anyway, it is a seemingly isolated short story. And this story is about an Englishman named Hob Gadling, who is immortal. And we are going to follow him over the course of seven scenes. That's going to be one scene per century between 1389 and 1989. And it is a long journey through the history of England, and and maybe especially it's a long journey through the history of English literature. So I think what we should do for this issue is talk about each of these seven scenes in turn, but that we should break those scenes up into kind of two, uh, two components, right? To talk first about the plot stuff, the Story that's that's being told, and then secondarily talk about what it is that Gaiman has peppered into the, the background, right? That the, the history. Stuff. So first up is 1389, and we're going to begin here in media res. We're at the White Horse Tavern in London, where Dream and Death are, are visiting. They've gone for a drink. This is a scene very much actually like what we get in The Sound of Her Wings. It's Death traveling around our world and Dream accompanying her, probably for his own good as well. But this seems actually like this is the first time that they've done something like this. And it is at the beginning behest of, of death, who thinks that doing this will, in fact, do dream some good, right, to see humans on their terms instead of his. And this is where we see Hob Gadling for the first time. He's drinking, he's talking with some friends. We learn that he, mostly he's worked as a mercenary in the ongoing Hundred Years' War, and he doesn't want... To die, and moreover, he doesn't intend to die, and he pronounces that he thinks that death is a con—that it's something that only happens to people because they believe that it is inevitable, and and so really, I guess, right to, to summarize up his feelings here, he goes on, you know, for this about this for quite a while, but he believes that you can just choose to live forever, right? If you just don't believe in death, you can live forever. Now, of course, Dream and Death are here. They overhear this conversation. And Dream thinks it would be interesting to give him what he wants and see what happens. Death makes it so. Then she takes her leave while Dream goes over and introduces himself. I mean, he doesn't you know say that he's Dream, obviously, but he says hello and arranges to meet Hobgadling back here in 100 years in 1489. And this is actually all that we're going to see of Death in this issue. And she seems very different to me than the manic pixie we met in The Sound of Her Wings. She seems much more serious here. And I had a hard time reading her emotions on the page. I mean, some of that's the art, some of that's the writing, but particularly her response to Dream's idea to Grant Gadling's wish. She actually seemed almost grumpy about that to me.
1: Yeah, it was really hard for me to read her emotions as well. And... You know, she's intent that her brother listen in and stop talking and complaining about stuff or talking about fairy and instead listen to what the people are saying. But we don't get a lot. We do get one panel, um, on page three of the issue where it is just her face where she's lighting on an idea, but it, she looks very mischievous to me in that f- picture, more puckish almost as opposed to like whimsical or fun the way the death was that we met in New York city years and years later. So I don't know if it's just because she's so morose coming off of the period of the black death, or if instead this is just, I I, I can't tell. I I really can't. Do you have any thoughts as to, you know, do you think maybe it's the amount of activity that she's had to do as death in this particular setting in this particular year versus when we see her in the late 20th century. And while there's a lot of tragedy that we saw in some ways that she was involved with, it was kind of not as common of a thing that she is maybe visiting people constantly. Well, I like the idea that she's just overworked here. And that's
0: why she looks a little grumpy. That maybe this is the first vacation she's been able to take or the first, you know, even even a day off she's been able to to take because of the Black death. But I do think that Probably she's busy all the time. I mean, in terms of percentages, and we'll talk about this in a moment, the, the Black Death was, was pretty serious. But in terms of, of absolute numbers, I mean, the First World War, which is really the context in which our saga opens, uh, claimed even more lives. In fact, actually, historians r- often quite like to compare uh, the 14th century to the 20th century in terms of types of calamities that, that people faced. I mean, not necessarily in scholarship, but it's a fun thing to do in the classroom when you're teaching the 14th century to get students to try to empathize though though now that students i have have actually not even we're not even actually born in the 20th century that's uh, that's becoming less of a a successful way to to do that
1: you all remember the um Influenza outbreak from earlier Last century, right? right. Uh, no. No, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, literally a century ago and In fact, actually just this past week I was teaching The First World War in class and really found Myself talking about it as something that happened Recently and then of course they all Know about because all of the the Authors of their favorite children's Books uh, were veterans of the First World War, which is true for us, right? We're thinking about Tolkien and Lewis <laughs> and so on And it's just not true for them, right? It turns out Because these aren't even the students actually who Read Harry Potter as kids. Uh, these are the students who read uh, Percy Jackson as kids, and uh, uh, he simply did not fight in the First World War. So they don't they don't have that background. Well, I've kind of wandered us into talking about the historical and and literary stuff here. So maybe let's just talk about what we get on the page. And we won't do everything, though, because otherwise, you know, we'll take up too many of your commutes and workouts this week. Uh, But we can hit some of the highlights here. And we actually get five pages into the story before we get an explicit date. But Gaiman does a number of really interesting, really excellent things to let us know that we are at the end of the 14th century, even if we can't pin the precise date. I mean, and that's even in just the first panel, we get this. Uh, one of the patrons says, war. Plague and two bloody popes fighting like weasels in heat, which is a great simile. That's an amazing simile. <laughs> another another game in line here that I'm just going to start incorporating into my daily speech. But this line is really here because these are, in fact, the highlights of the 14th century. Uh, we've talked already. You invoked, Brent, here the Black Death. That's 1348 to 1350. 13 Maybe this is the plague that's being talked about here. And this is actually one of the few pre-modern episodes that I can count on my students to have heard of in high school. So uh, maybe here also, we probably don't need to spend too much time talking about it. But it did kill about half of the population of Europe as it spread. And it had profound consequences on society, on Culture on institutions, uh, political institutions, but also religious institutions. And Hobb here even tells us that half his village died in the, the plague, though that actually strikes me as a strange thing to say because he's clearly not old enough to have been around in 1349. And while the plague did hit England again in 1361 and then again in 1369, and then really for centuries it's going to happen every really once a generation. But In those recurrences and and, and all the other recurrences, the mortality rate's more like 15% rather than 50%, uh, which is what he's describing. But, you know, that's all right. I, I don't need to quibble with the way that Gaiman is trying to capture kind of the spirit of the age here. And the war in this line is the Hundred Years' War. And as it says in the name, this was a very long war and Really, from the perspective of people at the time, this was a series of wars. And these wars were about who's going to rule France. The Plantagenet Kings, or Plantagenet, if you actually live in England, the Plantagenet Kings in England, who did also rule about half of France, in fact, ruled more of France than the King of France did. But they claimed that they were the rightful inheritors of the Kingdom of France when the French King Charles IV died. Uh, The French end up winning this very long war, but the English did have a lot of success. And most of us have heard the St. Crispin's Day speech from Shakespeare's play Henry V, which is all about a series of victories about 30 years after this meeting in the pub. And Gaiman does have Hobgadling tell us that he fought uh, in the first phases here of the Hundred Years' War. He says he fought under Buckingham in Burgundy. Uh, There was an Earl of Buckingham who led an English campaign in the early 1380s that it seems clearly to be what hob is talking about here but i i will again say that uh, game it doesn't have that quite right that campaign was in brittany not burgundy but you know also, that's all right, uh, and then we can come to the the last line here, or the last element in this line here, which is the the two popes uh, fighting like weasels in heat. The the two popes' business is about what is known as the Western Schism. This has its origins in what is known as the Avignon Papacy or the Babylonian Captivity. This was a period in which there were two popes: one in France, one in Rome, and. Western Europe was split over which was the legitimate pope, though obviously the French supported the one in France. And then because the French and the English are at war, the English naturally supported the one in Rome. And and this is all really actually wrapped up in the politics of the, the Hundred Years' War. So that's actually all just one line here. There's a lot going on in the background. And as I said, we don't need to talk about all of it, but we absolutely have to hit the literary history reference here, which is that Geoffrey Chaucer is in this pub. He's here talking to a friend. About his idea for the Canterbury Tales, his friend is a-, a monk here, and he thinks the idea sounds lewd, and he wants Chaucer to write something more like Pierce Plowman, which was a-, a popular didactic poem by William Langland that was written here in the in the 1380s, would have been like you know the big hit that everyone was talking about at this time. Chaucer, of course, right, he is one of the seminal figures in the development of English literature. We've we've all read at least a section of the Canterbury Tales, if not the whole thing, in high school, and I absolutely. Loved this bit here. I love the sort of pure historical stuff that Gaiman is peppering in the background, but these elements where we're actually going to meet figures from English literary history. Uh, to me, this is really the the primary joy of this issue.
1: And it's really great how he does it because he he doesn't say like have the monk say Geoffrey Chaucer, blah blah blah. He just calls him Geoffrey. So it's 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 subtle, but not that subtle. But it's not like smacking above the head, and there's not like a burst forth like special guest appearance by. You're right. It, it
0: is subtle and it's it's done very well. And even some of their conversation is actually in French because we're dealing with a period here where uh, uh, elite members would still have been speaking a, a form of, of French. Middle English at this point is the English here. You know, And you probably have actually looked at some of the Canterbury Tales and I don't know, a Facing Translation or something when you've read it in high school, where you've seen that although you can figure out what the Middle English says, it is different. And it's actually quite interesting here the way that Gaiman has them speaking a little bit in French about what literature should be about what highbrow literature should be uh, and English literature because some of the choices that Chaucer is is making here about how to tell his story what language to tell his story in what meter and what the the plot what the the episodes of these stories should be is a really significant and transformative moment right in the development of English literature that without the Canterbury tales there could possibly be there could not possibly be the the Sandman certainly not in the form that it takes now and so in a sense really right this is kind of a love letter to the long tradition of literature that Gaiman is just you know one part of here and all of that is just excellent
1: I'm not going to butcher the French, but uh, the translation here is the discussion of the language of the workers versus using flowery French language. And it's interesting also how much kind of class immediately comes into this conversation as well, that it's the discussion not just of the style of writing, but whether the writing is something that would appeal to broader worker class versus more the aristocratic class following the discussions that you know the word balloons we have before where there's a lot of discussion of poll taxes and the the need for revolt or the fact that there can't be a revolt of peasants again um so lots of kind of class issues here which of course permeate all cultures, but very much are usually in the fore of the writings of folks from England, like Neil Gaiman is, um, where class is something that I think is more easily discussed than in America. We like to pretend like there are not classes, even though there very much are. There's in theory more mobility in America, but in practice, um, not always is the, not always is that the case. So I think it's interesting to see the discussion of literature, but also the political is kind of continually wound into the discussion as well. Yes, absolutely. And of
0: course, as you pointed out already at the beginning, the, the title of this piece comes from this Lou Reed song that is about just your, the circumstances of your birth. Are you born rich or are you born poor? And how does that shape your life? How does that shape who you are? That is the motif that we're going to work with here. But you're right that in this very first panel, these class politics, uh, the idea of your station in life mattering, to you determining your identity but also determining what your life is like is right there in the first panel. I mean these guys are talking about a poll tax and really just maybe the news of the day, but one of the things they're talking about is is Watt Tyler and John Ball. This was the the peasant uprising of 1381 in which uh peasants Watt Tyler was the the uh, a peasant he was maybe a roofer that might be what his last name Tyler <laughs> means that he was doing roofing tiles that we don't we don't actually know because he was a peasant so we don't really have any uh, records of of him at all. And John Ball was a a priest who believed that God's perfect creation demanded equality, demanded that there not be any classes, demanded that there not be a distinction between peasants and lords, between farmers and the people who actually own the land, that there should be economic equality as well as spiritual equality. The the famous line from John Ball uh, in his, his famous sermon is when Adam delved and Eve span, who was then? the gentleman meaning right that when god created adam and eve there were no classes then that everyone was going to be equal and that if we want to live the way god intended us we need to overthrow the aristocracy uh and uh, so there was this massive peasant uprising this was in in 1381 it did not go well what tyler john ball executed for this by the king uh richard the the, the second there was some uh, some some treachery there it's all quite quite dramatic as well
1: and whenever we have discussions of literature of course and what we might think of as highbrow versus maybe not lowbrow, but kind of appealing to a more common base. I mean, also I think very much we should be aware we are reading this in a comic book, um, which is viewed by most people as being, you know, the funny books. And so this is, this is clearly kind of the literature of the working people in some ways, in ways that particularly when you're writing this 1989, 1990 versus, even how it's perceived now, although even now, you know, you're you're not gonna find a lot of comic books that are finding themselves in the um approved fiction canon portions of any reading lists or um in bookstores. You'll see them kind of still ghettoized to genre fiction, um, where usually it's thought of as more like, well, that's lowbrow stuff. So
0: that's a fantastic observation. You know, I know that the Sandman is great literature. I mean, truly great literature with capital letters. So I forget that, of course, to contemporaries, I mean, even to our contemporaries still today, that the fact that it's a comic book means that, or at least can mean that maybe it's not. And so Gaiman is is, is working with that as well. It's a fantastic observation. I think we could probably leave 1389 behind. We do have, we have six more centuries to get through here. But before we do, I want to just remind listeners that, uh, you know, we do on the network here do a history podcast called Agnes, the late antique medieval and Byzantine podcast. And uh, I've done an episode where I've interviewed someone who is a scholar of Chaucer's uh, work. Uh, You can check that out if you're into Chaucer. And I hope you you are, and I hope you will. But let's catapult forward a century here to 1489. This one is actually only three pages, so we'll probably spend a little less time on this one. This is the first appointment that Dream and Hobb have together. Naturally, Hobb is surprised to see that Dream has kept this appointment. I mean, he's also, a little surprised that he hasn't actually died himself. And we should say, too, here that he also doesn't age, which is, you know, almost always a conceit of immortality stories. Uh, and so Hob here is curious about who Dream is. He notes that Dream is extremely pale, which is funny, but he's also concerned that Dream is the devil or a demon, though he allows that maybe he's a wizard or a saint instead. And it is not clear to me then at this point whether hob thinks that his theory about death is true or whether he knows that dream or you know knows that this anonymous pale dude anyway is the one who is keeping him alive unnaturally what's your sense of that brenda of of how much hob understands about this
1: i think that hob doesn't fully understand it um and so that's somewhat what he's trying to figure out in some ways i am surprised that hob has waited a hundred years to try to figure this out, and it could be because he um maybe he believed himself some of the nonsense he was saying that you could just not die just because everyone else is dying if you choose not to in the prior time frame in thirteen eighty nine um but he clearly has worked out there's some kind of supernatural thing in effect, because he's also clearly not aging. In fact, in fact, he appears much younger and kind of healthier in the art in this section. But I don't know if he fully understands kind of the role that Dream has. Um, He seems kind of comfortable with maybe not understanding that, though. I mean, he asks questions if he's a wizard or saint or a demon. but. He, I'm not sure he cares what the answer is. I think he's just curious. Um, and maybe he's just trying to find something out about dream himself. And maybe it's just the way you ask questions of a new equipment to get to know them. It's not actually because he's trying to find out his own predicament.
0: Right. Hob is certainly not one to look a gift horse in the mouth here, right? He's happy that he's got this, doesn't seem concerned about how it actually happened. I think you're right that he is just more interested in who Dream is just for the the sake of it, because he is surprised that Dream is there because he doesn't know when he meets him in the pub in 1389. He doesn't know that this is, you know, a supernatural being, uh, a numinous power, you know, an endless here in the in the cosmos, he just thinks he's a regular guy who's giving him a hard time, very much like his friends at the pub were and kind of making fun of him a little bit. But then when he actually shows up, right, there's a bit of, of surprise there. And I think that you're right that Hob is a curious guy guy that he wants to know who this person is he's also quite affable and and personable and, and and rather charming as we'll see throughout but i think that there's also a real sense for him that part of why hob gadling doesn't want to die is not just that you know given the choice of being dead and being alive being alive is better but that he kind of doesn't want to let go of the world that he he's interested in the world that part of why he wants to stick around is to see how things change to see how things Turn out. So I think he's a maybe intensely,
1: maybe insatiably curious person. And I think that we even saw that back in 1389, where he had spent time thinking about like, well, why do people die? And could something be different as opposed to just like, nope, this is the accepted way of progressing. So this is, you know, what will happen. Um, So it's very much protagonist thinking. Which, again, in some ways, Hob is the protagonist of this particular issue just as much as Dream is, which we've seen before in Sandman comics where sometimes Dream is clearly the backseat and is more the supporting character, while folks like John Constantine are more the protagonist of a given issue. And we don't catch, at least I I don't remember there in 1489 being any kind of literary things going on around them, but we do see a lot of things that have changed changed in this uh, pub, particularly technological advances. There's a funny bit where uh, there's an old man shaking his stick um, at a fire uh, because uh, it's in a chimney. And if people just understood that it was much better when you um, had the hardening of timbers that occurred when you're just using braziers, um, which I hadn't even noticed the light and the fire coming from the brazier in the very first panel until I got to the page where there's the discussion of the chimney. And then I flipped back and then of course saw that. Um, but the furniture seems a lot more um, sturdy and kind of purpose-made. It looks less like a picnic table, um, which it kind of did in 1389. Um, we have support beams in the roof. We have kind of a much more evened wall. We also have women not just performing as kind of barmaid, but also sitting with uh, men to enjoy the company in the pub. And we have a couple people playing playing cards, even. Um, so there's an acknowledgement of the spread of playing cards, which uh, the Annotated Sandman notes that the earliest um, authentic references to playing cards, uh, according to Leslie Klinger's research in Europe, dated to 1377. And so they then spread. From then, so it it took some time for it to get to England for it to be ubiquitous enough that you'd have a man and a woman clearly playing cards in this particular pub right the The ubiquity of the playing cards
0: is actually tied to the one bit of literary history that we do get here, which is not the appearance of one of the great authors of the English Canon. but is this information that we get about what Hobb is doing? to make a living here, which is that he's gone into the printing business, which has only been around for a few decades. Obviously, right? the printing press uh, revolutionized literature, revolutionized learning and literacy. Right? Without printing, there's no book industry, there's no comic books, there's no Sandman. So extraordinarily important. But this is also why we have playing cards. Playing cards uh, do seem to be something that was invented in China, which is also where press was first invented, and do then over a course of really about 5 centuries to to make their way to Europe through India through Persia through the Levant but even when they do get to Europe in the 14th century as you said Brent they have to be made manually which means that they're only something that aristocrats that members of the elite wealthy people can afford Have But now that you have the printing press, the creation of printed materials, written materials is so much cheaper, right? And that makes it possible for working class people in this pub to have playing cards, whereas prior to that, they could not have done that. Something I tell my students when we are talking about the Middle Ages, or really even when we're talking about the turn towards modernity here, and the things that make the modern world the modern world, is that we treat books as pretty disposable. I mean, especially now that we can read ebooks that we can get for free or for a dollar. But uh, a Bible in the Middle Ages would have cost about what a compact car costs us today. So it wasn't Something that most people could afford, or if they had it, it was something that they that was a big deal to them that they had to make serious sacrifices in order to afford. The we treat books as as fairly disposable. In fact, I mean, I'm doing it literally right now with the lack of care with which this comic book is open on the table because I know if I break it, I could get another one, right? And that is a huge, hugely significant thing here in the in in history, but also in the history of literature
1: and also in kind of the democratizing of the availability of literature and. Playing cards and other things is is that it's not something that, again, is just something that those in the upper class might have access to, but it's something that might permeate and be readily more available to folks of various classes.
0: Yes, absolutely. And there, there is one more thing about maybe the intersection of history and the history of literature here that we should talk about before we uh, we go to the next century, which is that we learned that, although Hobbes is working in the printing business now, he's also continued to serve as a soldier, but the Hundred Years' War is, is over by this point and instead he's been serving in the Wars of the Roses, which was a civil war in England over which dynastic family would rule. This supplies so much of Shakespeare's history plays, very important for us, but it is also the inspiration for Game of Thrones, right? Which obviously Gaiman didn't have in mind when he was writing this, but that is a nice connection for contemporary readers of fantasy literature here.
1: The War of the Roses is a, is a great um, bit of fodder for uh, those who want to uh, envision or um, create fantastical settings based on the idea that you would have um, ongoing fights between you know, family dynasties in one country over a period of time. Right,
0: its influence on on fantasy literature is profound. I've actually just been reading uh, the fantasy novel *The Deep* by John Crowley for a, another podcast. I don't know you can hear that in about a year when I when I'll release that that episode. But again, that also was something that's the inspiration behind
1: that John Crowley novel as well. And, and Hobb also mentioned going back to the printing press that part of the reason why he got into printing is because you don't have to be a guild member. So here we also have the acknowledgement of the fact that there is the, you know, guilds have a position in society, not a discussion of whether that's something that's arisen since 1389, but certainly, um, kind of the prominence of a, kind of artisanal class, um, and then the structures and power structures that exist even outside of government and outside of uh, the king, there's discussion of that, which is kind of a, a fun bit of additional world building going on, I think.
0: Right. This is wrapped up in the the class consciousness that Gaiman has throughout this this story here, which is that these guilds in the Middle Ages were essentially something that we might think of as being trade unions, though the, the analogy is not it's not perfect there, but a big part of the guilds is that the technology that they use to do whatever it is that they do, whether it's it's roofing or making clothing or any any other number of of, of skilled uh, skilled labor, uh, you know, stonemasons and so on, is that the knowledge that it takes to to do that job and the 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 skills also as well are mysteries that the guilds protect. They don't want other people to know how to do these things because this is how they're able to make a living is by having a monopoly on that knowledge and this protects them from the the lords, the 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 owner class that uh Watt Tyler and John Ball had risen up against. Uh, it protects this these middle-class artisans from the uh, elites being able to to price them out of making a living and making them subservient. So yeah, even even here in this very brief scene here, we get some of that class consciousness.
1: And so then we jump ahead to 1589. Um, and in the annotated Sandman, uh, Leslie Klinger has a great bit from the script that Neil Gaiman wrote in which he explains to Michael Zuley um, doing the art mm-hmm. that now we're in Elizabethan era. It's a golden age Golden Age, of course, has, you know, some negatives associated with it, but it's something that compared to what came before and what comes after, it's kind of the bright, kind of shining beacon in which, for the purpose of the story, at least, uh, quote, there was a balance between the city, the forest and the field, which would soon go out. Uh, of Kilcher forever. Possibly he's overstating the case there, but that's the case that he wants for the purpose of the story. So here immediately we have the art be just a lot brighter. We clearly have, you know, that the buildings uh, have window panes in them and a lot more structural support, multiple chimneys coming out of the, um, the inn. And we have dream, discarding a rose on the way, way to, the, to the pub, which I think is great, but it's just a lot more airy and kind of a uh, beautific. Um, but we also have someone then, you know, working and bringing like a bundle of, um, either wheat or sticks or something just going about his day, but not particularly covered in mud or anything, just kind of strolling about his business.
0: Yeah, and dreams got a pretty awesome cap on here, right? The 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 fashions is, uh, look much better here in Elizabethan England than they did in uh, in either of the the previous two centuries. And and it's not just that you know to these technological advances have happened ge- sort of generically for society. Hobb has done extremely well for himself in the last hundred years. He's even Sir Robert Gadlin now because he made a small fortune in this printing business, and then he made a larger fortune in in shipping or, or, or ship building. Now, it's not quite clear which of those it is, but but something to do with the fact that also now we can sail across the Atlantic Ocean. And in fact, there are Europeans living on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, and that there's big business and big money to be made in shipping or shipbuilding. And of course, being rich, right? He's now been knighted. He's a proper aristocrat. And he's even had a family now. He's got a wife. He's got a young son. That is really all that we get of the Hob plot in this one, because it's Elizabethan England, right? And so... Shakespeare's here, right? And that is way more interesting than anything that could be going on with Hop.
1: Yeah, Shakespeare and in conversation with Kit Marlowe. We have both of them here, um, Marlowe having uh, his leg up from, uh, I guess, maybe a recent wound. Are you familiar with that?
0: <laughs> I'm not sure what this wound is about, actually. But Christopher Marlowe or Kit, as, as he's called here, uh, did die in, in violence uh, not too long actually after this is going to happen so I, I don't know if this is meant to be some kind of nod to the fact that he might be accident prone or uh, that maybe he's had his leg broken by people looking to collect a debt I think that's one of the, 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 the ideas, the theories that people have about why uh, Marlowe died this violent death was that he was murdered over a gambling debt or or, or something like that um, Not I, I, it has to be something like that that Gaiman is going for, right? Probably,
1: it could also just be the plan words about Break your leg uh, when you're going on stage, but uh, for performers. But it, it probably is some kind of more reference to here is Marlowe, kind of at the height of his ascendancy as a as a as a writer of plays, um, while Shakespeare is very much not anywhere near there yet. But to show kind of the cycles of things, where the, here's someone who's at their height, but yet something is already kind of off and going wrong, and soon you know may be associated with what is his end, uh, while there is a younger man who is kind of ready to have his own ascension. Right. And that is what's going on here. Shakespeare
0: is presumably buying some drinks for Christopher Marlowe in order to get him to read the, the script of his very first play, showing some of his early writing to Marlowe. Marlowe here, though, is letting Shakespeare know that what he's written is complete garbage and that the lines that we get here are not that good. But these come from the opening of Henry VI Part One, which is the first play chronologically in the Shakespeare canon, though I think contemporary Shakespeare scholarship uh, suggests that this was not really a Shakespeare play, that Shakespeare was a contributor to the work of others, that there are as many as maybe five or six writers of that play, that it was kind of a team effort, maybe in the way that like TV writing is for us today, and that only a little bit of it is actually Shakespeare. I don't know if the lines that are quoted here are recognized to actually be Shakespeare or if they've been uh, been pinned on someone else yet. But in either case, they're not that good.
1: And there's a fun bit where um, Sandman asks about, you know, whether Hobb knows Shakespeare and Shakespeare says that he, quote, acts a bit, wrote a play, which is Neil Gaiman said uh, specifically a nod to how people referred to um, Fred Astaire. He can't act slightly bald, can dance a little. That's fantastic.
0: Uh, One of the things I I love about this, right, is that Dream is actually intensely interested in what's going on between Shakespeare and Marlowe here. He's kind of distracted by it. And at the end here, he, he approaches Shakespeare and makes a bargain with him. He says, Would you write great plays, create new dreams to spur the minds of men? Is that your will? Then come with me, and then they walk off, and that's really the end of this scene. But of course, we're meant to understand here that the most important figure in the history of English literature owes his talent somehow to the help of of Dream, and and maybe to some kind of bargain or something. I mean, I think we can spoil a little bit and say this is not the last that we're going to get of this. Not the last we're going to get of it in this issue, but it's not the last we're going to see of this in Sandman either. But this is. This is a real interesting turn here because although Gaiman is is telling this story with one eye on his small role in this very long tradition of English literature, he's also having a bit of fun here in suggesting that his fictional creation is actually the reason that the most important figure in literature was great to begin with. Uh, There's some spot there. I like it.
1: Well, that's interesting because you know, we've seen the idea that dream and the dreamlands is kind of where we'll see more of this as we go, but it's kind of where ideas, fictional ideas kind of come from and exist. And so you would think that knowingly or not dream maybe would already be somewhat acquainted with Shakespeare, even if his work wasn't very good. And he certainly would be acquainted with uh Kit Marlowe at the time for his uh, Faustus. So, it's kind of a fun bit of storytelling, um, but I'm not sure where it kind of fits in the cosmological sense of how aware Dream is of mortals any given moment. You're absolutely right about
0: Dream knowing these people already. He even tells Shakespeare that they've met in Dreams, but of course, humans always forget that or often forget that when they wake up. But I think one of the things that, that I hadn't thought about until you pointed this out, Brent, but one of the things that maybe is going on here is that because the inciting incident of all of this is that death has talked dream into going to visit this pub in 1389 and dream has gotten interested in seeing what it would be like to be a human in in an immortal human i guess but he's checking in on hob every century but this might really be the only exposure that dream is having to humans in the waking world through really most of his existence and so he's taking an interest not just in the stories that he gets in people's dreams but in actually how that is translated into the waking world this might be the first time that he's really taking an interest in that here just because of the accident of of all of this the accident of the inciting incident here it'll be interesting to see if that's true or not as we go through the saga
1: Yeah, it it certainly will be. Well, there's one more thing that
0: I I want to talk about here, one more bit of dialogue in this scene that I find really interesting from a historical perspective. And that is that Hobbes tells us that his aristocratic estates used to be monasteries. And what he's talking about here is called the dissolution of the monasteries. This was a part of the Reformation in England in the early 16th century. Henry VIII abolished monasteries and then he confiscated their land for himself. And this was a huge deal because monasteries Owned about a fifth of the land in England. And how Hobb managed to get some of this land, though, is that Henry VIII mostly didn't hold on to this land that he confiscated, but he sold it to people like Hobb for cash because he needed that cash in order to go fight wars against Scotland and against France. And so, again, here, this is actually even some of this class consciousness coming through that. Hobb is not an aristocrat, but he has become wealthy because of changing technologies that he's been able to be a part of, but he still can't transcend that class barrier until this moment where Henry VIII needs his money and will let him buy that class status for cash.
1: So everything is going really well with Hobb, and I'm sure 100 years from now, he'll be... Nope, nope. Let's go back. <laughs> right. This is where we get to the
0: low point in the, the Lou Reed song, Men of Good Fortune. Yeah, 1689. This is another short one. Hobb is no longer Sir Robert. In fact, he has fallen on such hard times that he's actually not even allowed into the white horse, which, you know, is for gentry and decent folk, we're told here. And he says to Dream, he says, do you know how hungry a man can get if he doesn't die but doesn't eat this again seems to be game and drawing on the the idea of gollum here right though Hobbes not going to quite suffer that fate but Hobbes' story is is this here's how we got here so his wife died in childbirth and his son died as a young man and Hobb suffered from depression after this. I mean, that's not a word that appears in the story, but that's clearly what's going on. He has suffered from depression here. Uh, What he he says is, I didn't go out much after that. And after 40 years of living in the same place without aging, the the townspeople grew a little suspicious of that. And so uh, they tried to drown him as a witch. And he lost his property and his fortune uh, because of this. And after this incident, he served as a soldier in the English Civil War, but he was on the wrong side of that conflict. And so things have just not worked out for him. In fact, what he says is he's hated every second of the last 80 years. But even though he has hated all of that, despite all of this misfortune that has happened to him, he's not ready to die. He says, I got so much to live for. And I guess that's a healthy attitude, generally speaking, but there does also seem to be something maniacal here in his refusal to finish out his mortal years. I mean, the art is maybe a big part of why it seems maniacal to me. What what, what did you make of that, Brent?
1: The art definitely kind of connotes how terrible he's fallen and things have not been going well. He clearly is affected by the loss of his wife and child, um, and so because of that, just didn't know what else to do and kind of lost his sense of purpose in many ways, It seemingly. It's just kind of sad.
0: Yeah, it's extraordinarily heartbreaking. And I'm struck, though, by the fact that he wants to keep going, even though he doesn't seem to have anything specific that he wants to live for. But I wonder if the thing that he specifically wants to live for is to actually check in on Dream that he maybe feels like he's actually in some kind of committed relationship with dreams, some kind of once a century friendship, but that is a real commitment to him. And that's something that's keeping his him and that's something that's keeping him grounded here in the world.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it could be that this is the only person who he, who he still knows, um, who he is still kind of close with and who is in interactions with, as opposed to when he is on the street, not eating food, then all he knows is. For 80 years, well, I need to make it to this one person who, at the very least, will listen to me complain, makes it sound like I'm being too harsh, but just who will understand when I say, after living hundreds of years already, that the last 80 years have been this terrible.
0: It's interesting, too, that that time, 80 years, is almost the amount of time that Dream's life was really terrible as well when he was imprisoned, right, in the inciting incident for the whole saga, and so... When we get to 1989, which is, you know, where we're going to end this issue, they may actually have something more in common here because of Dream's imprisonment that we're not going to get anything about that. But that's maybe an interesting parallel going on here. Well, there are two historical items here in this scene. The first of them is the witchcraft craze, this fear of witches and the conducting of witch trials. This is something that my college students always think of as being medieval, but it is definitely not. This was not going on in the Middle Ages. This is something from the modern world. There's a modern phenomenon that was at its peak here in the 1600s. i have to say, too, this is actually the second episode I'm recording this week about 17th century witches, uh, because Brandon and I just did Edith Nesbitt's story the ebony frame for Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast. So I don't know if you want more on witches, you can go check that out as well. The second item here is the English Civil War. This was really three successive wars of the 1640s going into the 1650s that ended with the abolishment of the English monarchy, which is, you know, uh, this, this, class politics that we've been tracking throughout the story. And the the war kind of went like this. One king, Charles I, was executed, and his son, Charles II, was exiled. And after this, England, Wales, and Ireland were officially a commonwealth under the parliamentary leadership of Oliver Cromwell, and then his son, Richard Cromwell. Uh, They both used the title Lord Protector, which does sound like a pretty awesome title. I'd rather be that than a king, for sure. But Mm -hmm. ultimately, this did not last. And in 1660, Charles II returned returned from exile and became king again. All of the violence in the civil wars, which, which lasted almost a decade, was intense. It was profoundly destructive. About 100,000 people died. And while that is not much by the standards of the 20th century, as we, we talked about at the, the top of the show today, that was about a third of the population of London at the time. So this was a massive amount of violence. This was an extraordinary big deal.
1: And then in the uh, background of the inn itself or the pub, we see a number of changes. Uh, the chairs are now upholstered. Uh, the woodwork on the tables is a lot fancier. There are individual oil lanterns, both on the wall as well as on the tables. And there's just a lot of improvements that have seemingly gone on to the aesthetics of the place. In addition to them now having bouncers to prevent people from entering who are, um, not appropriately, uh, attired or classed quite right
0: oh yeah and the uh the costume in here is uh is uh is crazy you know dream's got the three-pointed hat he's got hose on but like eight coats or something like that the the fashions are not as good as they were uh, a century ago and you're right that All of the items here in the pub point to uh, prosperity and to technological advance. But I have to say, if I had to make the choice between the picnic bench and these upholstered chairs, I'm going to pick the picnic bench. (laughs) These chairs do not actually look comfortable (laughs) to me at all.
1: And we do on the last page in this time period see a woman who seems to be taking notice of these two and their conversation. We haven't necessarily seen that in the art before where someone is specifically kind of aware of or perhaps eavesdropping on their conversation. But this woman in what looks to me like quite a ridiculous outfit seems to be paying attention to them. And she even has a little kind of mask she has kind of set aside from her face, um, which is a little harder to see depending on uh, how you're reading it. Um, in the uh, original collection I have, uh, it's near the fold. So I'm having to press it quite a bit, but in the, absolute sandman and later it's easier to do with the color variation to kind of make out the fact that she's holding kind of a mask away from her so i think that this is kind of to a warning of things to come that someone or some people are taking notice that um these two are meeting and they keep talking as if they've met many times over the years hundreds of years right and this is going
0: to bring us into some comics history as we arrive in 1789 when this this comes back. Hob is rich again here, but we'll we'll talk about how he's become rich in the, the next segment, the history segment here, because there's a lot to say about it, but also because we've got a genuine plot in this scene, really for the first time in this issue. Hob and Dream are having a nice conversation about Shakespeare when some ruffians put knives to their throats. And these ruffians, it turns out, are in the employ of Johanna Constantine, who has heard a story that the devil and the wandering Jew meet once a century in this tavern. We don't really quite learn what it is that Joanna Constantine is up to here because Dream uses his sand to give her horrible waking nightmares. Uh, All of this, I have to say, harkens back to the the very first issue as well. But it is clear here that Joanna Constantine has something to do with John Constantine, the Hellblazer, whom we've met before. There are some other Constantines who are mentioned here uh, in the context of this story. So uh, the question I really have here, Brent, is, Are you ready to put your comics historian hat on and tell us about that? Because I have no idea what is going on here.
1: So as far as I'm aware, this is actually the first appearance of Johanna uh, Constantine. Mm -hmm. But she specifically is supposed to be the ancestor of John Constantine um, and is kind of a reference slash homage to that character. Also, I think it's, uh, again, Neil Gaiman kind of having fun with existing universal structures that we know about in the DC continuity and also kind of the rising and falling of families and individuals over time because um, she seems to be, you know, fairly well dressed and fairly well kept and looks a lot less kind of mangy than sometimes John Constantine looks to us uh, in contemporary periods. So it's almost as if um, something has the family perhaps f- has fallen on worse times um since her time here in um uh, 1789 but clearly there's still the interest in the occult and finding out you know how to figuring out like wh- what powers they have and how she might be able to to kind of stem from them also just kind of Wits and intelligence to network to gather this information, maybe from the tales that came from the woman who overheard the conversation a hundred years ago.
0: Right. She's clearly some kind of occult detective, just like John Constantine himself is. So, if this is her first appearance in comics, this is the origin of her. Where are some other places that we actually see her around the DC universe?
1: There was a period of time where. There was a number of Hellblazer specials in which Lady Constantine actually was the major protagonist, which I have not actually read. Um, they were from um, early in this century, um, so February 2003 was the first of those. But otherwise, uh, her major appearances are to in Sandman comics as well as in uh, The Dreaming, which was kind of a follow-on comic to um, The Sandman
0: who wrote these, these uh, special issues of, of Hellblazer that she appears in? Is it, is it one writer who was working in that period, or were there several writers? Andy
1: Diggle was the writer on both of the Hellblazer specials um, to feature her. It was the Hell Hath No Fury Parts 1 and Part 2 uh, storylines from uh, February and March of 2003.
0: Yeah, I'd be real interested in taking a look at those at some point, actually. So maybe maybe we'll put that on our our list of interludes or or, or Patreon episodes to to be done or some something like that. Uh, yeah, I'm certainly fascinated with this the idea that there's uh, another uh, occult detective, another Constantine, occult detective here uh, in the the midst of the the American and, and French revolutions and what might be going on there.
1: And the continuity um, in terms of creative. Folks involved with the lady Constantine um issues were um that again they were under the vertigo imprint, which Karen Berger was the um executive editor for, so the executive editor was the same from all of her appearances um in these so um but it's great. I'm looking at the covers right now, and the first one has her holding uh well both of them have her kind of with with <laughs> footlock pistols akimbo. <laughs> yeah, excellent. I mean, she's the, the Scarlet Pimpernel or something,
0: something like yes. that. Yeah, it's going to be like the Three Musketeers. Yeah, I'm I'm on board with this idea.
1: <laughs> and there's a great bit also when she, you know, when she first appears, the third panel in this time period, um, where she is tipping or paying off the the owner or manager or whoever is working the door at the um, at the bar at the pub. So clearly, she's had this working for some time and and has told this. Gentleman, like let me know when this person appears and then is ready to pay them off so she's had whatever scheme that works for a while which is quite the constantine thing to do is just having just a little bit of knowledge and making use of connections you have um, maybe to the detriment of those connections to uh, try to advantage yourself Um, luckily in this case uh, for the Folks she hired, they merely are put to sleep, um, but she is confronted with ghosts, old ghosts, which this is a problem that John Constantine frequently has where he is haunted quite literally by the ghosts of um, friends. And so the way Sandman um, Dream depicts it here, we're talking about Johanna Constantine, is that he is... Uh, she is old ghost that I have shown to her her kind walk amidst the flotsam of lives they have sacrificed for their own purposes till friendless and alone they needs must make the final sacrifice. Which sounds like something you'd say about John Constantine as well. So. Uh, uh, the more things change, the more things stay the same is very much kind of the spirit of this particular issue. And uh here we have it just in this little vignette of the Constantine family, Um, again, relying on the reader's understanding of John Constantine, the character who at this point, I'm not sure what the sales are of Hellblazer versus Sandman um this early in the run. But it may be that readers of this comic are still more familiar with John Constantine in the Hellblazer comic or his origins in the Swamp Thing uh, comics that Alan Moore wrote. So he may be the more recognizable character. So it's kind of like throwing in a reference to Batman or Superman in the comic in some ways.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because I guess for me, this felt like Almost like a backdoor pilot, right? Like the idea is, if if is going to introduce, is going to invent this character here, that the idea is that the Vertigo imprint was hoping maybe to get a spin off series out of it, uh, which which I lament that there is not because I would be super fascinated to read that. So I don't know if you're uh, if you work for DC Comics and you're listening to this, well, I'll buy that issue. You've got at least one reader of that if you ever do want to make that uh, a full comic book. But uh, we should turn now, I think, to the the historical references here. There are several of them, but the one that I think. Think we need to dwell on here is the Atlantic slave trade. This is how Hobbes has become rich again, by being a slave merchant. I think most of us know about the Atlantic slave trade since its legacy is still profoundly with us in in our world. But this was the forced migration of somewhere between 10 and 12 million Africans to the New World to work as slaves. And of course, their descendants all had to work as slaves as well. So it's about 100 million people that this affects in a a direct way. And in this issue, Dream is a that Hobb does this for a living, that he becomes rich off of this trade. He says, you take pride in treating your fellow humans as less than animals. And then at the end of the scene, he he tells Hobb to get out of this business. And I have to say that I find this interesting. We now, right, as high modern people are all appalled by slavery, right? So dream sentiments here are our sentiments. They're the sentiments of us, the readers. But our sentiments now are historically strange, actually. Most human societies have engaged in some form of slavery. And given Dream's endlessness, I would expect him here to be more surprised by abolitionism than by slavery, which would have just been a normal feature of most human societies that Dream had ever encountered before. What what, what did you make of this?
1: So because um this discussion between Dream and Hobb is occurring kind of off screen because we're tracking visually what Joanna Constantine is doing, we can't see not that Dream is known for his emoting, but exactly what his reactions are other than um his kind of questioning of Hobb. But um what's interesting here is also the juxtaposes against the discussion of King Lear, which at the time Hobbes says he saw a version that had a happy ending. So it's very much, I think, kind of a discussion of a society that is ignoring things it should know better by this point in time. One would think that by 1789 that you would understand that it's not okay to slave, to have slaves and to own people. And yet, the same society being like, oh, let's take King Lear and give it a happy ending. So it's, it's kind of ignoring kind of the negativity. Um, and I think that's kind of what Hobbes is, is doing too. He's turning a blind eye.
0: Right. I mean, this is this is hashtag first world problems here, right? But he's he's completely ignoring the the horrific plight that he is uh, sending people to in order to be rich enough to be concerned about. Uh, theater in, in London and to have strong opinions about it. And for that to, to seem to be the most important thing in his life. So again, right, this is where we're tracking this class consciousness that's been going on throughout. And we've even had terms like bondsman and, and bondage in the background chatter in the pub kind of throughout all of the, the centuries. And maybe one of the things that we're seeing here is that at the beginning of this issue, Hobbes was part of the people who were commiserating and lamenting the fact that the peasants' uprising in 1381 had not succeeded. But here he is now on the other side of that, that he's the rich person who's exploiting other human beings for his own enrichment and not thinking anything about it, that he's actually become the thing that he was complaining about and that his friends were complaining about at any rate, at the start of this issue. Well, I I do want to talk about this this Shakespeare business that you brought up, Brad. Uh, I think this is actually pretty important. This certainly is the thing that we're tracking here in terms of literary history as we, we go through this issue. Right? Hobb says he's just seen a new production of King Lear, but they gave it this happy ending instead of the original extremely tragic ending. I mean, this is one of the most heartbreaking endings of any of Shakespeare's heartbreaking stories. But doing this, giving these plays a happy ending was actually a pretty common practice, really one that began in the 17th century. In fact, it was really wrapped up in the English Civil War that we talked about in the previous scene, uh, because this has to do with Puritan values. And the idea here was to moralize literature, to make it wholesome, right? And this version of Lear is pretty famous, actually. It was written by Nahum Tate, and it was the version that was performed for almost 200 years. It's not until 1838 that the original is performed again. And this here, I think, in this scene, right, this is played for laughs a little bit as Hobb complains about You know, he's complaining about it, I guess, as a terrible remake, right? Which is basically our entire lives right now. But we do get something profound, and I think something possibly cosmological from Dream in this moment, where he says, That will not last. The great stories always return to their original forms. And this is capitalized, right? Great stories here is a proper noun. Dream seems to be treating stories here not as merely words, but as something almost metaphysical, something with a type of of permanence that transcends mere record keeping, but also as something that has a natural state to which they will return if left alone. This is a fascinating bit of metaphysics here.
1: Yeah, it really is. And it it kind of makes you think in terms of we've seen that he creates dreams and nightmares. And so those In some ways, are stories that are only affecting things within the Dreamlands normally, except for when we've seen that they've left the Dreamlands in the sake of the Corinthian and Hob and or not Hob (laughs) Brut and Glob. Um, So the idea that these things kind of have their own kind of permanence, and that it is appropriate that they be capitalized, that these are proper nouns, um, and that also. They have kind of their own kind of platonic form. And so deviations from that, you know, flickering on the wall in the cave is not really what that story is. What that story is, is actually, you know, this this tragic tale um, is, is very interesting.
0: Yeah, I wonder how this would actually work out in a, a real sense, in a, in a physical sense rather than a metaphysical sense, right? That what if all of the copies of the original as performed in on the Elizabethan stage, King Lear, had been destroyed by the Puritans and all we had was this remake with the happy ending, the wholesome family version of King Lear. That's all we had. But the suggestion here seems to be, right, that that the great stories will always return to their original form. So we're Speculating here that at some point the the copies of the remake the scripts that we have would overnight just transform into the original version and that maybe we might not remember that there was ever this remake or something like that uh, but and, and this is an idea that we we'll see, we will see, and, and maybe in the real world have seen Gaiman play around with already, right? Because he has some ideas about, you know, what happens to, to music that you leave in your car for a while in in, uh, in Good Omens, for example, about things re- reverting to or, or changing form in some way. And it's, it's a real interesting idea, I think, to track through his whole corpus.
1: In this 1789 version of um, The Tavern, it has apparently become more of a Tea or coffee house, um, because we have a nice kind of tea set, um, with some nice porcelain with decorative, um, glasses. The glasses, interestingly, have roses that look very similar to the rose that, uh, Dream discarded from his hand when walking towards the Elizabethan version of the tavern. Um, we have curtains, we have very colorful backdrops and painting, the painted, the walls are painted, It also has a very nice sign on the outside. We haven't seen the outside in a while to see kind of what the signage looks like. But here we have a nice uh, white horse with a couple, almost looks like two suns. And I wonder if those are references to kind of the two kind of metaphysical folks, supernatural folks who are visiting here. We've got the two figures who are always kind of visiting Hob and Dream. And it also made me think, uh, I've been thinking all along a little bit, but more so here when I saw that sign. Glenn, do you think that there's some part of whatever magic is keeping Hob alive is also keeping this tavern in business? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I want to look at the sign
0: here for a sec. You said that these look like suns, and they may, but I suspect that they may actually crowns. be crowns yeah i don't know yeah. what that would do for our understanding of what you know the the re- relationship between the sign and the story is that would be a great topic on the the, the forum and if someone who's really well versed in these uh these pub signs can you know like the heraldry of it right can uh, can tell us that would be fantastic but right the question of the longevity of this of this tavern to to pub to 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 tea house, to coffee house, and, and so on is, you know, one of the gimmicks of the, the story. But, you know, Game in here is pointing to the more things change, the more things stay the same, but also just tracking the history of London throughout this story by looking at this one location where there has continuously been some kind of beverage serving business uh, for for centuries. And that is often the case, actually, in, in places around England and, and elsewhere in the old world, of course, right? And there is actually a, a very real white horse uh, tavern, white horse pub in London and the, the East End. I think it's in Hoxton. I mean, I've been there, but I don't remember if it was in Hoxton or not, but I think it probably was, that I think is the one that Gaiman has in mind here, actually. But I don't know. I, I know, certainly, like many pubs, it, you know, claims to have a very long history, but I don't know if it actually, actually does. But I've lived in Oxford, where there are several pubs that that can legitimately trace their, their history back centuries and centuries of continuous operation. I mean, in some cases, the buildings themselves have been, you know, reconstructed, the interiors have changed, and so on, but that it's still there. So I think that this is kind of a feature of, of English pub life that Gaiman is maybe in, a, in some ways actually kind of taken for granted here.
1: So in this case, also, Dream and Hobb are meeting in what appears to be a private room within the tavern um, or a tea house, uh, the Ye Cobbett room. And according to the annotated Sandman by Leslie Klinger, um, the Ye Cobbett room is undoubtedly an indulgence of the owner of the White Horse, um, Thaddeus Cobbett. Uh, Thaddeus was the brother of George Cobbett, an innkeeper in Sussex and uncle to George's son, William Cobbett a journalist pamphleteer who wrote under the name Peter Porcupine. William most notably wrote Rural Rides, a polemic on agrarian reform, and eventually held a seat in Parliament where he was the leader of the anti-corn laws movement. And his biography was penned in 1925 by G.K. Chesterton
0: aha that's fantastic i didn't even notice that this was a part of the, the the story it's just this one placard right in the image yeah that is amazing right so connected to so many things right gk chesterton i have not read that bit of chesterton so well you know you can bet that i'm going to do that now with the rest of my weekend and i don't know we will report back in the uh, this the, <laughs> the, the the our dolls house wrap up episode that's something we can we can talk about but again also with right, the subject matter of this right, agrarian reform laws and so on right this is what we start with Farmers, peasants complaining about the way society is is set against them, the way that they're exploited by other people and what they should do about it. So, gosh, here that's even just all wrapped up in a plaque in one panel. That's fantastic.
1: So then moving on to 1889, um, we are returning back to a place that sells beer. Very soot-filled, smog-filled street that Dream is wandering down. And he... Uh, is engaged with by Lushing Lou, um, who um, tries to solicit him on the street, and he has no particular interest, um, and then she bursts into a little song. Lushing Lou, the annotated Sandman notes, um, was a regular denizen of the Whitechapel area, and her brief story and song are recorded almost verbatim in Henry Mayhew's important work, London Labor and London Poor, in 1861. According to Mayhew, quote, she was the daughter of respectable parents and at an early age had imbibed a fondness for a cousin in the army, which in the end caused her ruin. She had gone on from bad to worse after his desertion and at last found herself among the number of low transparent women. I asked her why she did not enter a refuge, it might save her life. Quote, I don't wish to live, unquote, she replied. I shall soon get DT, and then I'll kill myself in a fit of madness, she continued. Remarkably she is still alive in eighteen eighty nine um, was the comment from uh Leslie Klinger. Um so this is a Neil Gaiman doing his research again on kind of figures of who would be in the area around 1889. Uh, and then also she specifically engages Dream and asks if he isn't perhaps um, Jack the Ripper himself, um, who had viciously killed a number of women in that area um, in the years prior Right. In, in, in the
0: Whitechapel area where you just said this is taking place, which is the East End. And and so, yeah, that's fantastic to have that that confirmed there. And real interesting idea here, too, right? Just the, the, of thinking of Jack the Ripper actually as someone who, although a genuine historical figure, I think actually for most of us exists more as a literary figure, that we've encountered him more in horror stories than we've encountered him uh, in anything else. In fact, I was just actually literally watching the Star Trek episode uh, about Jack the Ripper just a, a few nights ago, for example. Uh, so that's a real interesting connection here, and you know, Brent, you also did mention that we're uh, we're walking through the London fog. It's an extreme contrast from what we saw in 1789, where you actually commented that we're seeing a very nice outside, and this is the first time that we've actually seen then the outside of the the White Horse as being really urban in any way, right? This is the London that looks familiar to us uh, for the first time. And that's the growth of the city is one part of that, but also is simply the development of the construction techniques that we use today and the literal erection of the buildings that are still in London really date from the the, the mid and late Victorian period here. So this is now really the, the first scene that we're gonna have that's really part of high modernity. That's part of the world that that we live in. And the story with Hobb here is really quite interesting, right? Hobb's been careful this time coming to the White Horse about a month ago in order to avoid any more, you know, surprises from occult detectives. But he also says here that now he's actually met lots of people who also don't die, right? There's there's Matt Hetty, whom we've met in The Sandman, but there's also a bloke who calls himself Blood. Brent, I have to imagine that you know who Blood is, even though I don't. So I'm hoping you can. Enlighten me here.
1: Ah, but Glenn, you have met Blood because Blood is the poor mortal who... Um has Etrigan imprisoned within him so uh, the demon Etrigan, when salmon visits hell uh, the rhyming demon basically shares a host body with uh, a mortal well who's <laughs> living a very long time, so maybe not mortal with a human we'll say uh named Jason blood oh, that's fantastic. I you, of course you told us all about this when we met him in a hope in hell, but I had forgotten some
0: of those those details uh that's really that's really fascinating well the 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 plot here is that Hobb tells Dream that he thinks that the reason that they have this arrangement, the two of them keep meeting here, is not because Dream is curious about what will happen to a human who lives forever, because there are all sorts of humans who are living forever and, and Dream surely could check in on them. And so what's going on here really is that Dream needs a companion. He needs a friend. He needs someone who won't die in 30 or 100 years because Dream is lonely, right? But this is not something that Dream takes well. And he storms out I and mean, Hob calls after him. I'll be here in a 100 years time. If you're here then too, it'll be because we're friends. And we're going to see what happens in just a minute. But I'm really interested here in Dream's, I don't know, I, I would describe this as an almost violent reaction to someone wanting to talk to him about emotions. That's uh, that's an intense reaction.
1: It is. Um, but I think it calls back to me how he has dealt with Nada. Um, to this point where he is very careless with the way that he treated her, objectifying her and kind of taking what he wants from her. And then when she tries to set him aside, um, he then has her sent to hell to, to suffer for, for eons essentially. And so this is kind of the return of the haughty dream. We've, we've seen dream and we've almost, you know, he's been kind of, warmer in some ways in this comic and so here is kind of the darker side of him coming out where there are clear distinctions between him and, and endless um versus humans and um again it's also in some ways a discussion maybe of some class politics in terms of someone who is low could not be friends with someone who is high it's it's purely for the benefit of the person who is high that they're interacting
0: Wow, that's an awesome reading of this. I hadn't really thought about their divisions as actually being parallel to these class divisions that we've been seeing throughout the whole story. And I think we should probably just zip right along to our last page, zip along to 1989, the present day of the story, where we actually get a bit of class going on here, just in the way that the the white horse looks. It's now a trendy gastropub full of yuppies. Hob himself looking rather yuppified here, though. We're actually not going to learn anything about his last hundred years, because all we're really doing is getting the conclusion of this emotional outburst from 1889. Because, right, what matters here is that Dream arrives, he shows up and he admits that they're friends. And then he asks Hob if he'd like a drink. That is the end of the issue here. But the question that I have about this that I think we, we have to be asking here about Dream is that would Dream have shown up to this appointment if he hadn't been imprisoned for 70 years by roderick burgess is he only coming back to see Hobb now because he's all, he's been imprisoned because he's had this horrible experience and does in fact need a friend in this moment what, what, what do you think about that
1: when folks have discussed this online that tends to be the conclusion folks come to which i think is right um i think it's the dream needed to go through the experience of being imprisoned to kind of reevaluate himself. Um, he finally, he's collected all of his items. He's somewhat getting more on his feet and he's, I think, I, I think the parallel of where dream is at here is though not nearly as low, but kind of where Hob was at after losing his wife, um, Eleanor and his son in which he was at such a devastating place. And as we were talking about earlier, he perhaps, there's a comfort to going and wanting to interact with someone who, even if you don't know that much about them, you know that they know and you then can understand when you say things like, for 80 years, I've felt miserable and I've wanted to die. That they know of you, the person that for hundreds of years prior to that, um, were kind of so full of life and absolutely did not want to die. And so I think here, similarly, Dream needed someone he could reach out to. He had his sister reach out to him uh, when he followed her around um, at the end of Preludes and Nocturnes um, slash beginning of Doll's House, depending on which version you're reading. But that's different because that's family. So here is, I think, him realizing, no, there is someone I have kind of friendship with. Well, you know, he returned to the dreaming and Fiddler's Green and some of the nightmares he's created have all kind of disappeared and gone about their way. And his regard for them, perhaps, is the way that his regard is, though, also for Lucian, where it's just very much it's more kind of class based, but it's also employer to employee where um you know, Lucian is a faithful servant as our kind of Cain and Abel, whereas Hobb does not work for him. Um, and so he is merely someone who he meets to chat with. And maybe that's exactly what kind of dream needs at the period of 1989 after having been imprisoned so long. But what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I like you. I I do suspect that he would not have shown up to this appointment if he hadn't had this this horrific experience. And I think it's also probably the case that he would not have shown up to this appointment if his sister Death had not gone and gotten him in the sound of her wings. And I think that that's a big part of the the parallels between these two issues, where we see that walking around the real world with her is 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 a part of both stories, is a feature of both. Stories. I think that's definitely my sense here. Is that he's he's gone through something traumatic, has come out the other side, different, you know, changed in in this profound way, and and does actually need someone who is a, an an equal to him in in some sense, but also different from him in another sense. That he can't only have other members of the Endless as his support network because their relationships with each other are entirely fraught in all sorts of ways that we've started to see and, and will continue to see as this saga goes that he needs an actual friend who's not a member of his family and this is this is who he's got right they have become friends uh, i mean you know they were almost uh, they were almost murdered by joanna constantine together if that's not going to make you friends i don't know what will right
1: and uh we did skip over a little bit but in the uh in 1889 there was a brief mention that uh Johanna Constantine did undertake some mission for Dream, so we might uh, see what becomes of that. There's also, um, in this time period, a discussion of bachelorite policies, um, in England going on in around Hob and Dream, or at least around Hob as he is waiting for Dream to show up. And these very much parallel some of the discussions, particularly when we first meet Hob so many hundreds of years ago um, that there's concerns about poll taxes and there's concerns about labor movements and peasants and whether, you know, how much authority they can have. And this kind of the cyclical nature of these things, um, kind of the ebbing and flowing particularly of the way english history is viewed over the last 500 years
0: right this is the the more things change the more things stay the same idea that people are complaining about the the same types of things if not the same specific things as they always have been uh there's even here uh Someone is is saying that they're concerned that AIDS is going to be the plague that wipes out all of humanity, which you know we know is not a, a real thing here. But in 1989 was a thing that 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 many people did feel, I mean, not rightly, but did feel that this is the sort of thing you actually would have been hearing people talk about in a bar. And of course, that parallels back to people talking about the Black Death or about the recurrences of bubonic plague as well. So that's been a big feature of this of this story, and it, it's 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 well done.
1: And then there's whatever joke uh, which ends in a reference to Are You Hunting for Rabbits Again, Vicar, is the same joke that we heard that punchline before.
0: Right. There's there's also this through line of priests not really living up to the high moral standards of their job as a a thing that people are joking about in pubs
1: as well for centuries. We've talked in this issue about how – and you mentioned that this looks a lot more like a modern gastropub um, with kind of – for the time – late uh, 1980s kind of furniture and styles and fashions. And we've talked in the past about how kind of coloration of between different versions of Sandman can kind of change the way you interpret the information. So I want to call this uh, out to our readers um, who maybe are reading it from one of the um, original collections like I am, uh, well, at least the first time I read it, where the couple in the foreground are kind of all shaded in kind of a blue color. But in the recolorized version that uh, was done for the Absolute Sandman um, and then the Sandman Om- Omnibus, we can see that both of these individuals, they're fully colored and it's a black woman um, in kind of a red top and a black man in a purple top. And then also in the background, there's another black man speaking with uh, a white man. Um, and so here we see on the couple in the foreground are both playing cards. So here we've seen kind of the evolution of things. So while things, the more things change, the more they stay the same in terms of poll taxes and a relative rights and rights of workers to, to management and to high versus low levels of aristocracy. We do see the improvement of, we uh, over time we've seen the women enter the pub um, as patrons. We've seen the introduction of the playing cards. And then here we have um, Hob, who unfortunately has his terrible past um, being involved with the slave trade, but there are patrons of this bar who are not just white people, where you've got some black people who are here and even uh, a black person or a white person Clearly drinking together, um, so you don't—you've got—you've done away with segregation to some extent within this um, venue, um, where you wouldn't have seen that maybe even the hundred years before, or the hundred years before that, certainly.
0: Yeah, that's a great observation. I hadn't noticed that, even though I—I I did read both the original color and the the updated coloring for for this. I just didn't. Notice that there was actually that difference between them. But that's a pretty significant change, right? That clearly one of the things that Gaiman had in mind here kind of gets left out of the way that this was originally published. Uh, And that's kind of a shame. But I'm glad that you've pointed that out. Because I think all of the things that we're seeing in the background here, right, are are game and showing us the way that uh, the world, maybe the fortune of the world has ebbed and flowed here. But that where we are in 1989, even though it has a lot of things in common, maybe with 1389, is better that if we had the choice, we would live in 1989. Not any of these other 89s that we possibly could have chosen here in these past six centuries.
1: So the one thing that struck me particularly um, – I think it didn't strike me, Glenn, until we hit 1889, but then looking back at 1789 as well, the way Dream is dressed in both 1789 and 1889 reminds me very much of the way I envisioned in 1889 Bram Stoker describing Dracula – which just kind of struck me is you've got this, you know, very pale person who's living forever and constantly revisiting this place. And then with 1889 and um, the setting of London, um, I-, I wondered how much of it was intentional to pick those particular looks and styles either from Neil Gaiman or that Michael Zuley did when he went to do the penciling. Um what are your thoughts on – is Dream kind of in some ways the inspiration for the, at least the appearance of what Dracula could look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So so I'll just say this was going to be
0: my favorite panel. So maybe we'll just move into our favorite panel segments here. Uh, and it was actually hard for me to not pick something with Shakespeare in it because I'm a huge Shakespeare fan. And there are also a lot of awesome costumes all throughout the issue. Uh, Dream in a lot of silly hats might be another way to put it, I suppose. but. This one I love here, right? This establishing shot that we get of 1889, of Dream in this top hat and the dark cloak, walking through the London fog at night, resonates with me in large part because this is something that exists in my imagination of literature like Dracula that you're you're mentioning here. And I didn't really think about that as a, a conscious connection that Gaiman might have been wanting us to make, so much as that. That's what we think of late Victorian London or late Victorian dress being, and that's the context in which Dracula is a character. I mean, Dracula is, you know, within five years, right, of of this scene that we're we're getting here. Uh, and in fact, actually in a lot of ways, right, Dracula owes something to to Jack the Ripper. So I think you're probably right here to to say that Gaiman, or at least to suggest that Gaiman is wanting us to be self-consciously thinking about Dracula and about Jack the Ripper, because the whole joke here, right, is that the 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 prostitute, Lushing Lou, actually. Thinks maybe that uh, the dream is Jack the Ripper because you know he's a scary-looking guy uh, prowling through the streets of, of Whitechapel here on a on a foggy night. But I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. That's a that's a fantastic uh, fantastic observation. Well, since we've naturally segued into the
1: favorite panel segment here, Brent. I mean, what was what was yours? Unless I stole it. I mean, that was tempting. There are a lot of great panels um, here. Um, I think the one I'm going to go with is uh, back when um, we're introduced to Shakespeare. Um, but it's not actually of Shakespeare. It's when Hobb is explaining uh, what's going on and he shows his, the image of Eleanor, his wife, to Dream. And then in the back of Dream, um, there is a barmaid who uh, is getting ready to bring over some water or wine or beer or whatever in a pitcher to, Kit Marlowe and William Shakespeare. Um, and she kind of looks over, but then my favorite panel is the panel after that where she starts st- strolling over to them and puts her chin so far up in the air. <laughs> So she clearly is at this point trying to like straighten her posture, put her chin up. And I don't know if it's whether because she hopes to be cast in the play or because, um, kind of the view of the playwrights as kind of the rock stars of the day. So she just kind of wants their attention otherwise. Um, uh, but I just love that work, the character work that's being done, um, in the pencil. And I don't know whether it's something that was in the original script that Neil had like envisioned that this is something that she should do or if it's something that Michael Zule determined just, to do himself when he was doing the art. But either way, I just love the the work that's being done by someone who is a pure background character that has nothing to do with the small story of this particular issue or the larger story of Sandman. Spoiler, as far as I'm aware, this uh bar uh, made never reappears so but i just love the kind of the detail that's put into well how is she going to compose herself as she strolls towards the table of these two well one famous playwright and one hanger on who wants his opinion on how to be a better playwright himself
0: well to be fair to shakespeare he was a famous actor at this point actually and in well, fact uh in the next in the next panel she's actually interacting with Shakespeare, who, you know, has his hand on her in a way that we would not be comfortable with now and says more wine, more ale and bust me quick, my sweet, right? We wouldn't feel comfortable with, uh, with any of this interaction, but there's a, she's got sort of an awkward smile there that, that, that seems like, you know, the sort of, expression you might have on your face when you know if you as as a as someone who works as a server for a living uh is is meeting a famous actor of the day you know in that capacity and and then the, the the panel that you've identified the the putting her chin up is like almost you know doing something performative as she goes up to talk to these two famous famous people i had not really noticed any of that again fantastic observation
1: um, so then backtracking a little bit the cover art what do you think of this great kind of cover art right it is a
0: great cover this is uh, a fantastic Dave McKean cover here it's it's showing predominantly here some sort of high or, or maybe late medieval manuscript in Latin I will say I'm not a trained paleographer that is to say someone who studies uh, the, the handwriting of, of pre-modernity so I can't actually narrow it down any more than that I don't know what century this necessarily is from though someone with even just a basic uh, training in paleography would be able to do that very easily. And this manuscript too, or maybe just the image of it, that's not clear to me, but it has a lot of flaws. So I can't make out what any of the lines are, but I will say that the odds are that this is scripture. I actually wondered if Klinger had anything to say about the the manuscript, about
1: what manuscript this is. He did not. Unfortunately, um, the Annotated Sandman um, has a lot of things going for it, but it rarely comments on covers. Um, So it did not do so here. Um, And in Dave McKeon's dust covers collection, it merely tells us what the materials were to use to make it. Um, There's no reference to... What the manuscript was. It's just ink, photography, paper, and watch. So it's interesting to me that that was an actual watch that he broke apart to. Um, make that part of the art but no reference to what the manuscript is that's interesting it almost kind of suggests that he
0: manufactured the manuscript right that it's not an authentic manuscript but that he created it I mean presumably gosh that's I mean that's what you would have to do because otherwise you'd be damaging this manuscript that we we need I mean even if it is just a, a bit of scripture and we have you know thousands of 14th and 15th century Bibles and maybe don't need it I still no one would let you damage this manuscript uh, in order to do that I, I would love to know more about this. I don't know. This is going on my list of things to ask him at a con if we ever, you know, get to get to see him at one. But the other thing that's that's going on here, right? The other image that we have is human skeletons. This is a classic type of image from the Black Death, even though this is actually like a, a modern X-ray image, I, I guess. And then, yeah, I didn't realize that this was going to be genuinely a broken watch or broken you know, clock lying on top of the the manuscript. But all of these are ideas that we see in this story, right? We've got the Middle Ages, we have the Black Death, we have actual death. And also the idea that time, um, or maybe not time, but like a lifetime, uh, just isn't the same for Hobbes as it is for, for for you and me, for the, the readers. Uh, that, that's kind of what I make of the, the cover. What did you think of it?
1: Yeah, I think that Hob is, that the clock is broken for him. His time is not running out or running, f- you know, it's, it's moving forward, but it's not, there's not a point in which the hour hand is going to return to, you know, the place of nothingness, uh, at least in the near future. Um, and the collection of skeletons, they all seem to be, it's almost as if they're standing or moving. And it looks like maybe there's a torso with flesh on it that's closer to us. I wonder if that's Hob and in kind of a little, Right of center. And then to the far left, there is, um, what I think is Neil Gaiman's head. But I'm thinking in this purpose, that's supposed to maybe be dream. So we've got a number of skeletons. These are the people who, um, just over the course of time, as humans do, die. Um, but yet we have Hob and dream who are continuing to move among these people who otherwise kind of have, ends of their lives themselves. But here we have this immortal man and the endless kind of shadowy creature who he meets with. Yeah, fantastic observations about, about what's going on in that image. And I have to say, I
0: loved this cover. This is probably going to be a prime candidate for me when we do our, our wrap up episode for, for picking uh, a a favorite cover. Well, we should, we should move on. We got to talk about the title here, right? Men of Good Fortune. We, we brought it up at the top of the, the show, but uh, you know, we can talk a little bit more in depth here about this Lou Reed song, Men of Good Fortune with, which which contrasts men of good fortune with men of poor beginnings, right? The sort of uh, two conflicting identities here, but there are also kind of two conflicting visions of what this is in the song, right? There's this idea that if you aren't born rich, you'll never get rich and you'll never matter. But on the other hand, people born rich don't really have anything to strive for, uh, while those while those who are born poor are often willing even to die to become rich, and that 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 greed maybe to think about it in kind of Adam Smith terms actually drives a lot of historical change that's a really interesting idea in the
1: song and i guess
0: we do see something like that here throughout the
1: story as well if you're doing well then you don't have anywhere to go but down seemingly uh while as if you're doing poorly, then um, the way the lyric has it is that you can do anything. Um, I don't know that you actually can do anything giving the way capitalist system works. Um, but uh, that's the hope of what it would be um, at least. But I also think that the men of good fortune is a reference specifically to, we have two men um, in the form of dream and hob, and they have a number of fortunes that come and go. Hobbs come and go up and down, throughout the course of his life. Um, but his fortunes are good at the end. in in 1989, when we catch up with him, he is not, not eating as he was earlier. He also is not as far as we know, benefiting off of the slave trade um, the way he was um, hundreds of years earlier. Um, so he is doing well and not, oh, we hope at least for, because of illicit um, dealings and dream, In the comic, we don't see his fortunes change in this particular issue, but we've certainly seen his fortune change in the run of the comic as he started extremely low being imprisoned and then gradually has been reascending and asserting himself. So I think at the end of this issue, they are both actually men of good fortune, but it also then tells us that maybe mm, this is before a fall that might befall one or both of them.
0: Right, because the the way that we've been tracking the ebbs and flows, we've seen a lot more ebb and flow uh, for for Hob than we have of Dream. But actually, we know, of course, right? This is a story that we've been reading. Is actually, uh, you know, the inciting incident of it is a, a, a turn for the worse for him, and things seem to be on the up, and they seem maybe to be for Hob here as well. So it will be interesting to see if we uh, how that how that tracks out. And I, I do think that we're going to see Hob uh, again. That's certainly the sense that I have of this of of, of part of why gaming. And is telling this story here is to, to use Hob later as we are building the cast of characters of dreams present that we've got uh, Mad Hetty, we've got uh, John Constantine, who's at least was at least invoked in kind of spirit here through through his ancestor. And now we've got this other human character here who who's uh, just walking the streets of London and maybe someone who's going to be important in the story as it progresses. Well, now that we have gone through our end of story checklist here and are talking about
1: things to come, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com
0: head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Men of Good Fortune. And especially if you uh, if you have good training or good experience in, uh, in reading pub signs, let us know if those were suns or crowns and what it all might mean. And if you would like to support the network, please check us out on patreon.com slash claytemplemedia.
1: And next time the dolls house part 5 collectors which has us returning to the main storyline. Yes, returning to the main storyline and is also a longer than usual issue
0: I think it's a 36 page rather than a 24 page issue. Uh, this episode I'm fairly sure is gonna turn out to be the longest one we've done but since we've got 50% more pages next time, I don't know maybe we can start a drinking game to see what uh, see what's gonna to see which one is gonna be longer but until then, pleasant dreams.